With the coronavirus continuing to spread, the powers that be are looking to boost the global economy in any way they can. In the UK, we have just witnessed powerful evidence of this. The Bank of England cut interest rates to just 0.25% this week, while Chancellor Rishi Sunak used his first budget to unveil a £30 billion fiscal stimulus package. But as always, there's more to a budget than the headline announcements. Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Dave Baxter, and joining me today are our investment writer Mary McDougall and Ben Yearsley, Director at Shaw Financial Planning. So, Ben, we'll uh, we'll have plenty of time to discuss all things related to the coronavirus. But first of all, let's start with some of the other elements of the budget. From a personal finance perspective, what things have caught your eye? I think there are there only really three things in the budget. Uh, pensions, junior ISA, and entrepreneurs' relief from a personal finance perspective. The simple one, the JISA, um, they've put the limit up from something like 4,300 to 9,000. There wasn't much call for this, so it's quite an interesting one. Seems a bit pointless. And actually, do you really want your kids to have a huge pot of money when they turn 18? They can do what they want with. It's, it's the old risk, isn't it, of the, uh, the, yeah, the motorbike because, fund or the travel fund or... Well, exactly. At 18, I mean, you could save with all the best intentions, but at 18, it's their money and they can do what they want with it. Mm. So I'm not sure where this suddenly came from. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any real desire for this, but it's there. So there's an extra savings um, pot to, to put away. So that's quite good. Um, the entrepreneur's relief is interesting. Um, this is the relief that where you, if you set up a business and sell it on, you had a, a £10 million lifetime limit where you only get taxed, um, uh, capital gains tax of 10%. Mm. That's now changed to, uh, as of today, it's a limit of a million pounds being taxed at 10%. This is one of those reliefs that I think has been chopped because it was being abused. It ended up, the, it wasn't the entrepreneurs and founders who were really benefiting, it was later stage investors who'd taken you know, more than a 5% stake in the business when it was later down the line. And as with any um, nice tax allowance, the more you abuse it, the more likely it will go. Um, I think the reality is this won't make any difference to the entrepreneurial nature of the UK. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the the Chancellor said that I think it was 80% um, of people using the relief wouldn't be affected by the change. Yeah, because most of them will only make up to like a million quid. Mm. You know, they sell the business and not that many businesses sell for more than a million pounds. But the reality is that actually you know, most people won't be affected. And ultimately, will, would it make a difference to whether you'd set up a business, whether you pay 10 or 20% you know, tax? Probably not is the answer. So I think it's a lot of hot air um, uh, around this debate, actually. Um, and I don't think it'll make much difference in the long run because 20% CGT rate Mm. It's still very low when you consider that, you know, dividends can be taxed at 37% and income can be taxed at 45%, obviously, mm. plus national insurance on top. So 20% is still pretty good, to be yeah. perfectly honest, yeah. as a standard rate of CGT on, on disposal. So it's one of those things that actually it was an easy tax grab. They needed to find some money from somewhere, and this is a way of doing it. So, And don't forget, you can still invest in many small companies through things like SEIS and EIS that gives you tax-free growth. Yep. So it's not like you haven't got the opportunity to put money into businesses and get a nice 
tax-free long-term growth of the business works. And how about the uh, the pension side of things? I mean, with budgets, there's always the uh, the kind of rumour that pensions will be upended and tax release will be changed. And as you mentioned, we've seen one change at least um, this week. Yeah, pensions have been a, a political hot potato for a long time. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's been brought into politician. I, I, it's funny, if you hadn't had the doctors, um, the issue with the doctors' pensions, for example, and consultants' pensions that, that reared its head last year or the year before. So, so this is the issue of um, doctors kind of feeling like they can't take on extra hours because they'll basically... Exactly, because they get a massive tax hit. Yeah. I th- if that hadn't have happened, I wonder whether the yesterday's change would have actually been made, and it probably wouldn't have been. So basically what they've done is they've increased the limit by 90,000 at, uh, at which point your ability to make a pension contribution is reduced. It was effectively £150,000. And after that, if you earn that much, after that it started falling, the amount you could put into your pension is now £240,000. So taking most people out of the problem, so effectively they've, they've kind of taken the... the sledgehammer and nut to sort out the, the, the pensions problem in the in the NHS, um, and, uh, or the top end of the NHS, basically, in my view. At the same time, though, they've, they've reduced what you can put in. If you earn above 240000 your taper now goes down to a minimum, or sort of maximum of £4,000 that you can put in, as opposed to £10,000. So they've yeah. kind of, you know, take, they, they've, they've given to a large section in one way, but taken away that specific group of people above 240 grand. It doesn't solve the problem long term. Um, it's still a mess and it's still complicated as the whole, the whole of the tax system is. And I wonder actually whether once we're through the coronavirus issue, whether or not ultimately because the Tories have a strong majority in Parliament, the strongest for many, many years, they will finally get to grips with you know, the mess that the, the tax code is, the mess that the pensions are, to actually simplify and make it easier for people to understand. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, what hasn't happened in this budget? Um, there, are, there are certain kind of areas, as we talked about pensions and tax, for example, that perhaps haven't been confronted, um, arguably because, you know, the coronavirus is front and centre of the agenda at the minute. What other areas do you think have been sort of avoided for now? I think IHT, inheritance tax, yeah. is probably the big one. Um, that's another one of those reliefs that the business relief effect, we used to be called business property relief, it's now business relief. And effectively, if you invest in an unquoted company or a company listed on AIM, the alternative investment market, after two years, that investment effectively falls outside of your estate for inheritance tax purposes. Now, this rule dates back to, I think, 1975 and was basically was, was designed so that if you owned your own family business and passed it down through generations, it would avoid crippling taxes on death and it would allow you to pass the business down to the next generation. Um, effectively, it's another one of those reliefs that you know, is probably being abused. I mean, why, why if you invest in a, in a share quotable name, should you be allowed inheritance tax-free status? Mm-hmm. Now, you've got multi-billion pound companies on AIM, yet they give you inheritance tax-free status if you, if you hold it after, for, for two years. Yep. Um, it's another one of those reliefs that started out with the best intentions and actually has now morphed into something 
that it the, the, very different to how it started, and that actually it's costing the, the exchequer a lot of money. Look how much money is poured into AIM over the last you know five ten years and things like that. Mm. But that creates its own problems. In that how do you sort the issue out without decimating things like the AIM market? Um, uh, it, it's a difficult one. But yeah, that that's one of the ones that I well at some point will probably be attacked and maybe it, you know maybe it's just been put into the long grass because of um you know it's it's complicated and actually there's too many other, other things going on at the moment to actually look at that one but i think that's still there at some point that they will they'll come back to that at some point and look at it and whether they you know they change the rules because they decide that two years is too short for example mm. you know simple way of, of changing inheritance tax we would say right your minimum holding period is now five years that then makes you a proper long-term investor uh, i mean that could be one way of doing it without killing aim which is probably a big concern about uh, changing the relief yeah i mean there, there have been various kind of representations on this subject haven't there more more broadly on iht and uh for example looking at the idea of scrapping the seven-year rule and um like you say, maybe it's something that will come come up further down the line. Well, there are, there are also things like you know, if you put uh, IHT down to you know rate of say ten percent, you don't actually need any exemptions. You know, yeah. again, it's the old um, uh, the argument about you know the, if the tax rate is too onerous, you do everything you can to avoid it. If the tax rate is seen as fair or even attractive, then you're more than likely to pay it and you're more relaxed about paying it yeah yeah it's the same argument so yeah if you had a 10 percent cgt rate a iht rate do you need all these exemptions yep you, you probably don't at that point in which case you know that's the other way of you know of doing it reform and this is the sort of thing that the, that the tories with their majority and five years could well look at at some point so you could see big upheavals in personal finance over the next five years, yep. if they are radical and actually wanted to simplify, you know, you, you think about how simple your life would be if you didn't have, I don't know, if they merged national insurance and income tax, for example, if they reduced the IHT rate to 10 or 20% but got rid of all the exemptions, all these things, suddenly you don't have to make all these, you know, extra calculations and all this extra planning. You can actually, it'd actually make life a lot simpler. Yep, no more tax planning, or much less tax planning, I suppose. Less tax planning, yeah, you yeah. still need tax planning, but certainly less tax planning, definitely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, otherwise, was there anything kind of obscure in the budget? There are usually things kind of hidden in the, the government's documents that are kind of worth um, looking at. I mean, one one fairly obscure thing I noticed was a talk about reviewing VAT on fund management fees. Is yeah, one really? of your um, one of your one of the Investor Chronicle sister titles picked this one up, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, this is interesting. I, I don't think there's anything in it, but currently you have this odd situation where uh, funds, so an open-ended unit trust, for example, uh, there's no VAT charged on the management fee on on that fund. Yep. But if you uh, invest via a discretionary fund manager or a stockbroker, discretionary stockbroker, you potentially have that to pay on their charging. So there is a discrepancy within, and actually there used to be a case with investment trusts where they charged VAT wrongly, actually, as it turned out, and they ended up being able to claim it back from HMRC. 
um, a few years ago, this is now. Um, so you have got this discrepancy within the investment world, uh, and I would imagine the it's more to do with looking at the DFM charging side of things rather than the fund charging side of things. If that were added to fund fees, I mean, that would raise a significant amount of money every year and would obviously put the, the cost of, um, you know, I think the average cost of a fund is, say, 75 basis points, 0.75%. 20% fat on that will take you up to 0.9. You know, that's a significant extra cost every year. Which would raise, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. Was it there's a trillion pounds in UK funds or something like that? Mm. You, the amount of money that would raise would be gargantuan. But I, I don't see that happening. But it was interesting they're looking at. But I say I think it's more, more to do with the DFM side of uh, the investment world. In fact, they have to charge that at the moment. Yeah, another one to watch then. Um, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, exactly. You, you say you only find these things, and actually, like the JICA, Junior JICA. That was only in the budget documents. That wasn't mentioned in the speech. Yes. So there's yes. all these little interesting things that you end up yes. finding out about afterwards. Yeah, things tucked uh, away. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for your, uh, for your points on that. So the budget focused very heavily on the coronavirus. And with the virus continuing to spread around the world, we're still seeing some really sharp moves in markets in a minute. While adventurous investors might be keen to drip feed some extra money into a falling market, those with a more cautious approach would do well to check which of their diversifying assets are actually doing their job. Mary, you've been looking at one particular sector that's very topical, I'd say, aims to protect investors in difficult market conditions. What are we talking about? Hi, Dave. Yeah, so I've been looking at absolute return funds, um, which use a range of strategies to deliver positive returns in all market conditions, which is quite an attractive prospect yep. um, as the US enters its first bear market in over a decade. <laughs> and bond yields are at historic lows. So they promise to deliver positive returns over a period of typically one to three years, but there's no guarantee of performance. So while they might target cash plus three to six per year, there's no guarantee that you'll get that. And from the analysis that I've done, a large majority failed to meet these targets. So for example, in 2018, when the FTSE 100 was down 12%, only 16 out of 105 funds managed to deliver positive returns. Wow. Um, And I had a look at more recently. So 19 funds have had positive returns over the past month. And of those that have three-year performance, only two-thirds of them have positive performance over three years. Interesting. So I guess, yeah, sometimes absolute return funds can protect you in kind of falling markets, but there's a problem around consistency then? or uh, Yes, yes. There's, um, I think they're much more volatile than people understand them to be. Mm. Um, so just to explain how they work, um, they're quite they're quite complicated. So they use investment techniques such as short selling and derivatives in theory to reduce risk. So they can cushion losses in falling markets, um, but sometimes they can get things wrong. And we we've seen some funds that have, um, I suppose, particularly struggled with this approach um, in in the last year or so. So one notable one has been Jupiter Absolute Return, which does uh, short strategies and been hit very hard. And then uh, you've recently you've seen some coverage of the um, what's called the H two O multi returns fund. They've been long Italy, which obviously yeah. has been a struggling position, but they've also been short Treasuries, which have uh, made huge gains amid the uh, the sell off. But are there are there any names worth using? There must be a few kind of standouts that have actually done their job. Do you want my honest honest opinion on this? <laughs> I'd probably avoid the sector um, entirely. So nothing in it. Well, first of all, the sector. You've got to 
Right, you look at the sectors, and you can look at UK smaller companies as probably the best example. 60-odd funds in that sector, they're all broadly doing the same thing. They're all investing in smaller companies, fine. Some might use AIM, some might not. But they're all using the same thing, or doing the same thing. This sector, I mean, you just look at the last month, the top performing fund in the absolute return sector of the last month is a fixed income fund, mm. and it's risen 4%. And the worst performing fund is the H2O multi-asset, multi-return fund that's, that's fallen 22. In between, you've got equity funds, you've got multi-strategy funds, you've got you know, geared funds, you've got, you've got such a wide range of funds in the sector that it's very difficult, first of all, if you're a, if you're a normal investor, actually, first of all, looking at them and, and there's, no common, there's very little commonality between them for a start. That's mm. the first thing I would say. Um, Main thing I'd say is I think there's just no. Uh, I think Mary's already said this is l- lack of consistency in the returns of these funds over the long term. You know, you might have a manager, and Gars was Standard Life. Gars was always the poster child for this sector. Yeah. You know, it got to thirty billion pounds in size by about 2014-15, from memory, on the back of admittedly some good years performance before that, when it was you know typically doing seven eight percent per annum consistently for a few years. And then it's had a shocker for sort of three or four years and consistently lost money. So even funds that have done it for three or four years in a row suddenly just stop performing. Yeah, Gars has actually, its five-year performance is flat, but over the last year it's up five and a half percent. Yeah, no, Gars, that's from the but that's on the back of about four years of really poor performance. Yeah. I mean, I, no. what, what I find interesting about strategies like Gars, they're, they're the kind of big multi-assets... Um, funds that use lots of different approaches is I the personally I find it quite hard to understand what they do if you even if you look at their documents um, they kind of detail these yeah you they're know, fiendishly complicated yeah. <laughs> basically with something like that so you've got two these again you've got more than one type so Gars for example that'll have about 30 different strategies within the fund and each individual strategy is, is for example they might be um, long UK equities versus short US equities mm as an example, or long the Japanese yen versus short the Canadian dollar, or something like that. And you've got all these different moving parts within it, so it's very difficult to know where you are. Now, you compare that to Jupiter Absolute Return, which has been a shocker. I mean, got James Clooney, the manager, got caught out by Tesla. He was shorting Tesla in January, yeah. when Tesla basically, I think, doubled, didn't it, during the month or something. Yeah. And that's much more traditional long-short fund. Long equities, short equities. So profiting on the long side from fund shares that go up, and profiting from the on the uh, when you go short of equity when it falls in price. And basically, he's you know, for example, just got the wrong end. He was long value and short growth, and it's continued being a, a long growth, short value market, uh, short value market, for example. But they're both in the same sector. You've got two di- very different funds with looking to do two very different things, all in the same sector. But ultimately. All of the funds in the sector rely on the fund manager picking the right stocks or the right strategies. As with every other fund, if the fund manager gets it wrong, you'll lose money. If the fund manager gets it right, you'll make money. No different in this sector. There's no magic. There's no magic wand here that can make <laughs> make you money. It's ultimately down to the fund manager picking stocks and strategies to either be long or short of. Yeah. Do you think there are any that have consistently worked? Because in theory, they might be able to. No, I, I hate the sector. I really okay. do. <laughs> um, I've got more and more annoyed with the waste of time of the sector. 
And this will have it'll have a bit of resurgence. It'll probably there'll, there'll be some funds that will do well during this period because they'll be net short of the market. It's interesting because some funds have done well in uh, one sell-off and particularly poorly in another. Um, so, for example, we talk about James Clooney's funds. If you look at that in um, the last quarter of 2018, when we last had a big market sell-off, that actually did sort of reasonably well. Um, but obviously this year and recently, it's uh, like you said, it's had a, a really poor time. I think for most investors, this, this, this sector should largely be avoided, actually. I think it invariably disappoints. Yeah, and I suppose investors have been leaving the sector, haven't they? If we, if you look at fund flows last year, it was the most kind of highly sold mm. part of the fund market. So people are voting with their feet. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, uncorrelated assets have worked. So if you look at all, 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 you know, the markets have done what they're supposed to do. For example, when you have a big market meltdown, people have a flight to quality and a flight to safety. And what's done well in the last month? Gilts and U.S. Treasuries. So they've performed, and, and the Japanese yen actually as well. You know, that's another flight to safety asset. So the things that traditionally do well in a, in a, in a proper market downturn yep. have actually delivered what they're supposed to do, which is provide safety and security in those times. In terms of funds, what kind of stands out to you in terms of a kind of reliable diversifier? In terms of a specific fund? Yeah, I um, mean, you, you mentioned a few kind of asset classes and, you know, we... Like you said, things like government bonds seem to have performed their traditional role of defending portfolios. But um, one fund that I often come back to, if you're looking for something that provides you with some equity upside, but also some stability, some diversification, uh, a bit of everything, then you've got to look at, um, uh, there's one standout fund, I think, um, which is as an investment trust and a fund that Troy Trojan is the Troy Trojan is the fund and personal assets is the investment trust, both managed on the same basis by Sebastian Lyon. And that's a mixture of global equities in developed markets, government bonds and gold. The the, the amounts in each will vary depending on the outlook on the global economy and everything else. But I think something like that you know, if you're looking for a good core long-term fund, but it's never going to be the number one fund, but it also won't be the it won't be the number, you know, a hundred fund in a downturn. It, it does what it says on the tin. It's trying to protect your assets in a real on a real basis over the long term, but providing this you know with this diversity of of equities and government bonds and gold. Yeah, we we actually recommended that fund this week on that on that basis. That will have done well, so the equities will have fallen, obviously, recently. Mm. But the, the government bond element will have helped protect the portfolio, the worst ravages of the market. And, and gold will have done, you know, gold's gone up as well to a degree. So, you know, something like that is, is if, you, if you had to just pick one fund, which I wouldn't ever do, yep. but that's probably the fund I would pick. In terms of asset classes, is there anything else that you think is good to kind of add to your portfolio, such as... Uh, property, infrastructure, just to add further diversification? Um, I think property doesn't give you much diversification at the moment because it's uh, so tied into the health of the consumer. Um, you know, if, if we're all locked in and can't go out, then property's going to suffer as well because shops will suffer, pubs will suffer, yeah. you'll get more bankruptcies, you get more companies going to administration and things like that. So I'm not sure property acts as a diversifier. 
I think infrastructure does over the long term and provides you with inflation protection. But again, what is infrastructure? It's rail, it's airports, it's roads. And again, in this quite unique situation that we're in at the moment, that isn't really acting as a diversifier either because those assets aren't being used. I think it's hard finding, apart from traditional bonds and government bonds, um, it's hard finding a, a diversifying asset, actually. Mm. So maybe the, uh, the 60-40 approach still kind of holds up. Yeah, but I wouldn't buy government bonds at the moment. I'd rather have cash, I think. Oh, you look at the government bonds at these levels. Mm. I think the two-year... Did the UK two-year go negative the other day? I think it did, didn't it? Mm. Now, why would you buy that over, have that over cash at the moment? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, don't forget cash is a diversifier. Yep. Okay, well, thank you, Bert. Some some really interesting points there. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. But do check the magazine or go to investorschronicle.co.uk for more on the budget, absolute return funds, and how investors should respond to the coronavirus crisis. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 